Well, if you have a Bible with you this evening, please turn with me back to Acts and chapter 8, the chapter that we read from a few moments ago. And uh, my title, my theme this evening is A False Professor. A False Professor. After the the Lord Jesus Christ had risen uh, from the dead, he gave to his disciples that great commission, didn't he? Mark 16 and verse 15, he commanded his disciples saying, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And not only did Christ command his disciples to do this, but before he ascended to heaven, he also promised them in Acts chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 8, he says to them there before he ascended into heaven, he says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And by the time that we reach the chapter that we've just read this evening, Acts chapter 8, we find the apostles have indeed received this power from God and they have begun to preach the gospel to every creature. They had been witnesses in Jerusalem, they had preached in Judea and now here in Acts chapter 8 we begin to read of Philip the Evangelist now taking the gospel to Samaria. Verse 5 there says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Philip went down to this city of Samaria. Of course, you remember Samaria was the city of the Samaritans. And you'll recall that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. There was a mutual hatred, wasn't there, between these two nations. When we read the Gospels, this hatred is evident. In actual fact, we find only two occasions in the life and the ministry of Christ when the Saviour entered the region of Samaria. You recall that on one occasion he met a woman who was a serial adulterer. And on the other occasion he comes across ten lepers. And Philip now following the command of Christ, he goes down to this city to preach unto them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he finds a city, it would seem, that there were, where there were many who were possessed with unclean spirits. You see this in verse 7. And many who were sick paralyzed, those who were lame. But it's here in this city of demon possession, this city of sickness, that he comes and he preaches Christ to them. And the people gave heed. The city gave heed to the word that was preached. They listened, we read there in verse 6, with one accord. They gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. And as the word was preached, And as the signs followed, it left a remarkable change upon this great city. Men and women who were formerly under Satan's mastery and control, they were wonderfully delivered as the unclean spirits departed from them. The paralyzed were wonderfully healed. And in verse 8 we read this, there was great joy in that city. Friends, let me just say this to you this evening, that this is what the preaching of Christ can do. It can bring great joy. It delivers men and women from the power of Satan. 
The gospel raises the spiritually sick to newness of life and it brings great joy. Why? Why does the gospel bring great joy? Well, because the gospel of Christ is the power of God, isn't it? Unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And at the end of this chapter, we are given a a wonderful example, a case study, you might say, of what Philip the Evangelist had been doing uh, all the way through Samaria. We have this wonderful account of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we read how how Philip comes and he preaches to him Jesus, doesn't he, in verse 35. He opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And it says... Uh, that not only does he preach unto him Jesus, but this Ethiopian eunuch, he believes with all his heart. We read that in verse 39. Philip says to him, do you believe with all your heart? And, and he then believes and says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he's baptized. And then we read in verse 39 that he went on his way rejoicing. And friends, tonight, isn't this what the gospel of Christ does? It leaves men and women rejoicing. The gospel of Christ is wonderful, isn't it? Remember what the hymn writer says, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. You remember how the chorus of that goes, since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. That's what the gospel does for sinners. It brings joy. But you'll have noticed that as we read this passage, that sandwiched in between these two accounts of joy, of the city of Samaria rejoicing and the Ethiopian eunuch rejoicing, there's a sad story that sits in the middle. And it's the sad story of this man called Simon the sorcerer. The narrative, you notice, hits a twist, doesn't it? You see that indicated at the beginning of verse 9. You notice how verse 8 says, There was great joy in that city, but there was a certain man called Simon. And that word, but, there, it immediately highlights that this man was different. And the account that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us details the the story, this sad story of this man, Simon. It's a story of a man who appeared on the surface to be a true believer. He appeared to be genuinely converted to Christ. He appeared to be a faithful follower. But as we shall see this evening, his profession was an empty profession. His motives were impure. And we read, you read there in in verse Uh, 21, that his heart was not right. And the Holy Spirit has placed this account here to warn us so that we might search our hearts. We need to carefully look into our hearts and to see whether we are like the people of Samaria or whether we are like Simon. And perhaps there's someone here tonight who is a false professor like Simon. Perhaps you've made a confession of faith in the past. Perhaps you've said that you believe. But there's never been a work of grace in your heart. There's the appearance, perhaps, of Christianity, but not the reality of Christianity. Well, this evening I want us to quickly look at this case of Simon, who was a false professor. And it's my prayer that as we do so, the Lord would challenge us and search us by his Spirit. 
And I want us to notice three things about this passage, this account of Simon. And the first thing I want us to notice here this evening is Simon's faith. Simon's faith. In verse 9, as I said, we're introduced to this man. It says there was a, a certain man called Simon. He evidently lived here in the city of Samaria. He'd obviously done so for some time. And we're told that he used sorcery. The Greek word there translated as sorcery is one from which we get the word magic from. This man was a magician. He practiced witchcraft. He deceived the people through sleight of hands. And verse 9 tells us that he bewitched the people of Samaria. The word uh, bewitched there means to amaze. It means to astound. The people were spellbound as they watched him. And this power that that Simon possessed, it, it, it came from Satan. And it amazed not just, you know, one or two people or a small group of people, but so compelling and so astounding was this man's skill and his deception that we read that from the least to the greatest in verse 10 gave heed to what he did. The whole of this city, in a sense, was enthralled by this man. He had their full attention and they thought that he was from God. They said there in verse 10, they said, this man is the great power of God. And Simon played on this. He used his wizardry, he used his sleight of hand to deceive and to delude the people. He took advantage of their their ignorance. And verse 9 highlights the pride in this man's heart. He made out to the people that he was some great one. He vaunted himself, he puffed himself up, he pretended that he was great and everyone marveled at him and and was amazed at him. But then into the darkness, Philip came and he preached about someone far greater than the person of Simon, someone who had come from God, someone who was God. And Philip preached with a power far greater than anything that Simon had possessed And he performed miracles that were more amazing than anything that Simon had achieved. And the people believed. And their attention was no longer fixed on Simon, but it was now fixed on the Saviour. Men and women, we read there, believed. And they were baptised. And they came and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simon sees all that's going on. He sees these people believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 13, then Simon himself believed also. And at this point, we might say, praise the Lord. Here's this man who's been in darkness. Here's this man who's been practicing sorcery and magic and witchcraft. And it says that he believed. This is clearly a case of someone who's been translated from from the kingdom and the power of darkness into, into the kingdom of God's dear son. This is wonderful. And not only does it tell us that he believed, but it says that he was baptized He wants to identify himself with Christ in this symbolic act of dying with Christ and being raised with him to newness of life. And not only do we read that he believed and not only was he baptised, but we then read that he continued with Philip. Literally, it means he pursued him, he followed him, he stuck hard next to him. Everywhere that Philip went preaching, Simon was there. When Philip performed a miracle, Simon was by his side. And everything here points, doesn't it, to a glorious change in this man's life. You know, if you were to compose a Christian tick list, 
you know, surely this man's ticking all the right boxes, isn't he? It appears to be so real, it appears to be so genuine. And friends, we have to say this evening, there are many people who outwardly look a lot like a Christian. They walk like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, they go to church, they say the right things at the right time. They talk about having a conversion experience. And it can all seem so very real and and so very genuine, just like Simon here. But look again with me at verse 13. Simon believed, yes, tick. Simon was baptized, yes, tick. Simon followed, continued with Philip, yes, tick. But then it says that he wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. He wondered. Do you know, that's exactly the same word that's translated as bewitched in verse 9. You see, he was amazed, he was astounded, he was, he was bewitched by what, by what Philip was doing. And, it, and as we look at this, we say, you know, what is it that's amazing him? Was it Christ whom, Peter was, whom Philip was preaching? Is it Christ who all these signs were pointing towards? Was it Christ crucified who was amazing? Was it amazing Simon here? Was he amazed with the love of the Saviour so for someone like him who was so lost and so undone in darkness? Was he being astounded at the great cost that Christ paid to save a sinner like him? No, Luke writes here, it was the miracles and signs which were done. That was all that amazed him. Having, you see, himself performed great acts of deception, he's now confronted with true power. And it's these outward displays of power that captured his attention. Simon's faith here is a false faith. It was a hypocritical faith. He was insincere. And you notice, as the narrative goes on, Peter and John come down to Samaria and Peter sees right through the false faith of Simon and he sees that he has no union with Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 21 with me, it says there, Peter speaking to him, he says, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. It's an interesting expression that Peter uses there. That phrase, this matter, literally is this words it's the word logos it's the same word that's used uh, back there in verse 4 therefore they went they were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the words i'm sure you know it's a word this word logos it's used to speak of the gospel but it's also a title for the lord jesus christ And Simon, Peter, says to Simon, he says, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this word. You don't have a part in the gospel. You don't have a part in Christ. You are not connected. You're not in union with Jesus Christ. And furthermore, he says in verse 21, For thy heart is not right in the sight of God. It's not right. Outwardly all seemed good, but inwardly there was no work of grace. Remember, of course, this was true, wasn't it? Not just here in the Acts of the Apostles, but it was true in the Lord Jesus Christ day, wasn't it? You turn back with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And you go towards the end of that chapter, verse 23. We have almost an identical situation to the one that we find here with Simon the sorcerer. 
John chapter 2 and verse 23, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. You notice what it then goes on to say, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And of course, the then goes on, if you ignore the chapter break, it goes straight into Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees, and Christ sees his heart. And you see, as the Lord Jesus Christ looked out, they believed in him. It says they believed in his name, but did they really believe in him? No, they looked on at the miracles which he did, and the Lord searched and knew their hearts. And friends, this evening there are many sat in churches today who are like Simon and like the people in Christ's day. They display certain outward signs. They may make a profession of faith. There may be even an intellectual assent to the truths of God. But sadly, there's no union with Christ. And there's no inward change in the heart. And they're attracted perhaps to the church because of outward things. Perhaps it's because of the kindness and friendliness of the Christian people. Church can feel safe, can't it, for people? Perhaps it's the singing and the music. It makes people have a certain feeling inside as they sing along to the old hymns. Perhaps some come looking for companionship. And so to fit in, they display outward signs of conversion. Let me ask you, is there someone here like that tonight? Perhaps you come every week. Perhaps you've even made a profession of faith once in the past. And there's outward signs perhaps, but there isn't any real faith in the hearts. Perhaps you're not sincere. It's not Christ that interests you. It's other things. It's companionship. It's the music. It's whatever, whatever else it is that brings you here to this church. But there's no delight in Christ and, and joy in Christ. Let me ask you tonight, are you like Simon the sorcerer? And you have a false faith? Well, having considered Simon's faith, notice secondly with me this evening, the sorcerer's fruits. The sorcerer's fruits. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, he asked the question, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? He said, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And Christ goes on in that passage in Matthew 7 to say, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. The the true test of a man's faith is by the fruits that it produces. And we see here in this chapter some of the fruits that are produced by Simon's faith. I recall once someone who had... uh, some seeds for the garden and they sowed some of these seeds uh, but uh, they had too many uh, seeds there was too many seeds in the packets for their little vegetable patch they had in their garden and so they offered the rest of the seeds to a friend to plant in their garden and I forget exactly how it happened but I think the packets or something all fell off the front seat in the car as they were driving home and all the seeds got mixed up and uh, some of these seeds look very similar to each other. And the person, you know, said, well, I don't know what I've got here. What, what am I to do with these seeds? And someone said to them, well, just plant them. You'll soon find out what, what the plants are as soon as you put them in the ground and they begin to grow and the fruits appear. 
And in a sense, this is what we see here in this passage. It doesn't take long for the rotten fruit of Simon's false faith to begin to appear. There's a number of things that we can point to. Firstly, if you look with me at verse 18 and 19, notice what we read here. When Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. And here is the first, as it were, rotten piece of fruits that we see in Simon's life. He thought that the gift of God could be bought. Peter says there that thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money in verse 20. Simon had failed to understand that the price of redemption and the gift of the Holy Ghost was not something that could be bought with silver and gold. No, the very opposite was true, wasn't it? Redemption's price had already been paid. It had been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter writes in his first letter, we have not been redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. That was not the price of redemption. No, the price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55 reminds us, doesn't it, that we are to come and we buy without money and without price. Salvation is a free commodity. Christ has paid it all and faith, of course, is simply holding out the hands to receive the free gift that Christ offers to us. It's receiving what Christ has already purchased at Calvary and dying in our place. Remember what Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, there are some who are still like this today. They would rather buy their way to heaven than simply come to Christ. It hurts their pride to to simply trust in the Saviour and receive this wonderful free gift that brings joy. They want to do something or pay something. Whether that's offering up money or offering up some kind of work or going through some kind of pain and, and, and hardship. You know, true penitence is, all, is often replaced with penance, isn't it? What can I give? What can I do? What must I, what must I achieve? But friends, tonight, although the wages of sin may be death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Simon made the great mistake of thinking that the gift of God could be bought. But the second sort of piece of rotten fruit we might notice from this passage is that Simon sought spiritual gifts for selfish ends. He sought spiritual gifts for selfish ends. Simon wasn't actually interested in having the Holy Ghost for himself. He didn't want to personally receive the Spirit. Notice his request there. He says, give, uh, in verse uh, 19, he says, give me also this power on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Simon wanted this power to give the Holy Ghost. And his aim here is purely selfish. He didn't want the Holy Ghost himself. He wanted to have the power to distribute, as it were, the the Holy Ghost on other people. And we see here his natural, selfish heart. It's an unchanged heart. He was seeking only natural things. He didn't really want the Spirit. He just wanted the power. He didn't want to be changed. He just wanted to impress others. 
He realized that this power was greater than any other power that he'd had before. You remember that Paul speaks about this kind of person, the natural man. He tells us that the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirits. Remember how in Romans 8 and verse 5 he says, They that are of the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. In verse 8 he says, They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8 verse 9 he goes further and states, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And Simon did not have the Spirit, nor did he want the Spirit. He just wanted to distribute the spirits. He hoped, you see, that by having this power he might be even further exalted, that he might still be some great one in the sight of these Samaritans. And again, there are many, aren't there, who make false professions with this same end in view. They want to perhaps preach, they want to lead meetings, they seek a position in the church, and all it is to do is to bolster their pride, is to gain recognition. Christianity is purely there to serve their selfish aims. Let me ask you, is that why you're here tonight? You're only here to satisfy some selfish desire that you have. That's what Simon does here in this passage, selfish aims he's seeking. But there's a third piece of rotten fruit that we notice from Simon's description here, and that is that Simon depended on others for his own salvation. He depended on others for his own salvation. In this passage, Peter sternly warns Simon. And he points out the danger that he's in. But you notice his response in verse 24 to all the dangers that that, uh, Peter lays before him. In verse 24, he says, pray ye to the Lord for me. He begs Peter, can you, please can you pray for me in my position? We see here, don't we, a degree of sorrow, but we don't see any repentance. We see fear, but there's no humbling of himself before God. He was instead depending on other people. He would rather ask them to pray for him than pray himself. And friends, this mistake is not just confined to Simon, but there are many today who hope to be saved from hell because they have a godly friend or a Christian parent or because they come to church. They make no supplication for themselves. There's no personal penitence, but they rely blindly on others. And again, let me ask you, friends, tonight, is this you? Are you relying on someone else for your own salvation? Are you relying on their prayers? Are you relying on their faith? I was speaking to a woman recently and I said to her, are you a Christian? And she said, I'm a vicar's daughter. It's not the same thing, friends. You can't rely on someone else's faith to save you. Have you personally repented of your sin? You see, Simon comes here and and, and he says, pray ye to the Lord for me. But there was no prayer coming from his lips. Friends, don't make the same mistake as Simon does here. But we've seen this evening Simon's faith and we've seen the sorcerer's fruits, but I want you to notice lastly from this passage a solemn forewarning. A solemn forewarning. Peter looked at Simon. He saw these fruits. He saw there was no union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw that his heart was not right, and he says some incredibly striking things in verse 20. Notice what he says here. But Peter said unto him, 
Thy money perish with thee. Thy money perish with thee. See, he issues this solemn warning to Simon that if he continues as he was, that he was going to perish. In verse 23, he goes on and he says, I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He says to him, Simon, do you not realize that you're chained by sin, that your experience is the most bitter and the most painful, and the ultimate end will be that you will perish? Friends, what Peter says here is very serious, it's very solemn. And these words show to us that the end of the false professor is one of eternal damnation. False faith leads only down to a real hell. But while Peter speaks this solemn forewarning, he doesn't leave it in a hopeless situation. He doesn't say, you are going to perish and leave it there. But he actually gives him the answer. And the wonderful thing is that Peter shows to us here that no sin is too great that it cannot be pardoned. Not even the sin of a false profession. And I want you to notice this carefully here, what what Peter says, because he gives him the answer. And he gives us the answer tonight if you're a false professor. Notice what he says here in verse 22. Here's the answer to to your problem. He says, repent therefore of this thy wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And there's the answer. Instead of a false faith, there needs to be sincere repentance. Let me ask you tonight, have you done this? Have you repented of your sin? Have you come to the Lord and said, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've turned my back upon you. Yes, I'm in the the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. Yes, I've done, gone my own way, but I come and I repent of my sin. Friends, have you done that tonight? But not only do you need to repent of your sin, but you need to pray. You need to humbly pray. Simon was relying on the prayers of others, but Peter says, pray God. Friends, have you prayed to the Lord? Have you come in faith and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and said, yes, Lord, I come to you now, I repent of my sin, but I'm going to trust in the Saviour who died for me. I realise I can't pay for my salvation. It's far too great a cost. I realise silver and, and gold can never buy my redemption, but I thank you that Christ has paid it all. Oh, I thank you that Christ has paid the price for my sin when he died on that cross. Friends, you know, when you sincerely repent, when you humbly pray, do you notice what Peter says here? He says this wonderful word at the end of verse 22. He says, you may be forgiven. Forgiveness. When you come and you trust in the Savior, forgiveness. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's why the people of Samaria went rejoicing. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch carried on his way through the desert all the way back to Ethiopia, rejoicing because he knew the forgiveness of sins. And friends, when you come and trust in him and you know the forgiveness of sins, you can leave even this building tonight rejoicing. And you can go to your home rejoicing that Christ has done it all. I pray this evening there would be no one here tonight like Simon. Sitting here, coming here week on week, hearing the gospel. But perhaps professing falsely. 
No, we don't, the Lord doesn't want counterfeit Christians, but real, genuine followers of Christ. And I pray and trust that the Spirit would search all of our hearts tonight and that we would follow the Lord and trust in him.